0: Hello and welcome to the season three finale of Voices, the podcast. I'm your host, Brian Ward, and today I have what I hope to be is a very exciting guest. Uh, This person is a certified gambling recovery mentor, a smart facilitator, a musician, a father, and a person in long-term recovery. And a person whose beard has now more of a reputation than he does. So please help me in welcoming Brian Ward to Voices, the podcast. Hi, Brian. How are you? I am doing well. How are you doing? Well, I'm really excited to have you here. Um... So obviously you've told us quite a bit of your story, uh, in the season one finale, mm-hmm. but is there anything else that you'd like to add as far as like how you got to where you are now? Yeah, it has been a couple of years since I've been able to kind of check in and, and let people know. So, um, as you said, I'm a certified gambling recovery mentor. I'm a smart facilitator, um, really there's been a lot of evolution over the uh, last couple of years where I've kind of, um, moved from a place of receiving a lot of support to trying to offer a lot of support. And obviously there's, there's still support to be had for myself. I mean, when you listen to this podcast, you, you can hear, uh, hopefully, that there's still a lot of support in place and the people that i talk to these are all people that i've come to know um, pretty well and feel very supported by them and then i guess the other kind of major uh step that's happened in the last couple years is that i was uh, recently diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder and so that's been pretty eye-opening. Um, and I'm currently back in counseling and, and, uh, working towards being able to manage that in a more healthy way. And so adjustments are needed and we, uh, continue on. And what sort of things have you learned in your own journey in recovery? Mm. I've, I've learned, and it's, it's been said here too, that, um, Connectivity is the enemy of addiction. Um, Being able to build up a community around yourself, people that you can uh, trust uh, to be able to be yourself around. And one of the things that I learned was that developing a recovery community was really important for me, but developing other communities as well. So being involved in martial arts, which I talk about a lot, being involved in music which i also talk about a lot having these different communities that i'm a part of really does kind of make it one community which is which is brian's community right there there are people that maybe have a different skill set or a different capacity for being a member of my community But it's a pretty well-balanced community um, with with people like kitty and roger and uh, people that i can lean into when i need support in recovery and advocacy and mentoring and then having people in martial arts that when i'm struggling physically or um, or even emotionally having uh, people there that i can lean into and have kind of a reciprocating level of support Um, is is really tremendous. So why do you advocate for recovery? Uh, A lot of people think that this is meant to be a very personal, even anonymous journey. So how do you help someone when they're not sure that the help is even needed? So there were a couple questions there, so I'll try to answer each one of them. Why do I advocate for recovery? I advocate because I recognized really early on that being able to find people that could relate to me was really important to me. People that can say I understand the journey, uh, there's nothing that you can say that will like scare me away. And so by creating something of a of a public advocacy work, we can not only work to try to reduce stigma around language and behaviors but we can also start to let people know that there is not just sympathy but empathy a a sense of understanding a sense of compassion that uh, some people may not be able to accept early on they may not be able to rationalize that sense of compassion for themselves But as they go through that journey and they recognize that the compassion is there, um, they can start to understand a little bit more why it's there and then begin to to offer it to other people as well. And so I think one of the most important reasons that I advocate is to let people know that there is is a, a broader sense of that compassion and a broader sense of action being taken than what we might recognize from uh, whether it's politics or lobbyism or anything like that. True grassroots lived experience advocacy can really show that you can kind of take, take the narrative of your story and, and make it more your own and, and you can utilize it to, create a trajectory for it? I I don't know if, if that makes sense to everybody, but hopefully it will to some. And then how do I help people who aren't sure that they want help for themselves? Well, that, that is, um, a tremendous question. One that, that we don't really have the answer for. If somebody's not sure if they want the help, but they are willing to try it, that's that's something that we can work with, right? that That's something that we can introduce what options might be available, give people a little bit more insight, much like what this podcast does, right? it It takes um, it takes people who might be in that contemplation stage of change, like like you slash I talked about in the last episode. It takes that contemplation and and helps kind of push them into a more planning mode um if they hear something that's going to be of interest to them right so when we talk about raising interest raising awareness around interest or concern it's really about helping people find interest or find concern within themselves and so somebody who's not sure if they're ready for the help but might be willing to try um is that that is something I think that that can be expanded if somebody is sure that they don't want the help right if if somebody is still in pre-contemplation um there's not a lot to be done other than and again kind of like you talked about and I talked about this is getting very confusing The idea of letting people safely fall off the bike, right? So when when we talked about, like, the parent helping their child, we're going to, when we take the training wheels off and we know that they're about to go at it for themselves, we do want to make sure that they have things like pads, knee pads, elbow pads, helmets, right? But then we let them crash, we let them see how this is going, kind of kind of whether, they, whether they're able to ride the bike or they crash, they're able to have that firsthand account of the consequences of what it is that they're trying. And then they can reevaluate if they're ready for that next step, if they're ready for that next push. And I think recovery works kind of the same way, where sometimes people do need to feel the consequences of their actions in order to raise concern around the behavior. I want to go back. You, you talked about having an anxiety disorder. What or how did that diagnosis affect your recovery journey? Oh, wow. Um, it, it didn't necessarily affect much of the behaviors around it. I mean, Realizing that I had an anxiety disorder really just opened my eyes to how much I was kind of struggling to present myself as, as mm, typical or, or normal. Uh, when I was telling people that I was diagnosed with it, there were quite a few people who seemed pretty surprised, and these are people who are even pretty close to me. And in thinking about the idea of persona masking the idea that what you're presenting to the world isn't a full representation of yourself. Um, I think that definitely came into play. People typically saw me as very well put together as far as uh, composure. I didn't have that stereotypical and even stigmatic um, uh, symptoms of anxiety, the panic attacks, the huddling in a corner... Uh, mine was very much based in a sense of hypervigilance and hyper responsibility. So if there was a problem, I had to solve it. There was no excuses for not. And taking that kind of weight onto myself, one of the things that I was telling my counselor is, I feel like I've got pretty good coping skills. I, I've developed tools around cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these things that can help me survive the moment the part that's really troubling for me is how often i'm having to call upon those tools and feeling like every every moment again feeling like every moment of every day is just practicing these tools and utilizing these tools to try to shrink my world back down to the present and try to get out of the worry So we started working on that and it became very evident that um, I was having a hard time living in my feelings and living in a world where I wasn't calling upon the tools immediately, but rather exploring my feelings a little bit. So uh, my therapist did um, refer me out for a prescription for an antidepressant at a low dose to help treat my anxiety. And there was about a month there where it got really um bleak. I mean not not bleak in the sense that like I was terrified for my safety or well-being, but I I ended up having to tell my counselor that I was feeling really apathetic about things. I mean, I I was Less motivated to do things. Um, I was sleeping a lot, and I said, "You know, it's not. It's not that I don't care about these things because I, I do. Like I like. I care about my family's well-being, and I and I care about doing a good job at work. But I'm also not feeling as motivated to to do something about it, right?" I was feeling very lost because there was this absence of worry about things. I, I wasn't giving up on any of it, and I wasn't really apathetic, but in my situation with anxiety and having that constant state of worry and hypervigilance and hyper responsibility, the idea that that worry wasn't as severe... Made me feel like I didn't care as much, and so when you put that with with recovery and and how those two start to affect each other, it was it was scary. I mean, it was scary to think that well, if I'm if I'm not hyper vigilant, if I'm not using this anxiety, I, I had convinced myself that my anxiety was something of a superpower because. I was able to accomplish a lot while dealing with it. And I was able to, to satisfy a lot of uh, needs and ambitions because of my anxiety. And so I feel like I kind of stripped away a superpower, but in the end, all it meant was that I was, I was letting go of a lot of worry. I, I saw a meme, uh, on Facebook, which is where I get all my best information. And, uh, it, it said when I say either way, no worries. What I really mean is that I'm worried about both plus a secret third way. And that really resonated with me, right? It wasn't, it wasn't about no worries. It was more about I'm going to worry about all of these things until one of them comes to be and then when that one comes to be I've already kind of prepared myself for it to happen. And so in stripping away that that worry I was really taking away a lot of theoretical and hypothetical outcomes. And I was able to more closely focus on what was actually happening, and not as much on what could happen what uh, what sort of rhetoricals might uh, come into my mind and so after that that kind of month of feeling apathetic and feeling lost and and not quite sure who I was um there was a, there was a bit of a bounce back where my body started adjusting to the medications. Uh, I started refinding some motivation, but it was coming from a slightly different spot. It wasn't it wasn't coming from a sense of worry about not doing a good job. It wasn't coming from a place of worry about uh, how much I cared or didn't care or how much I was perceived to care, and it rather came from a desire to do what I valued and I I value the work that I do and I value my family. And so I was able to to find motivation through my values as opposed to just this fear of failure or perceived failure or uh, whatever you want to call it. it. It really is a pretty dynamic shift. And I feel like I have more capacity now to work with that. And again, I'm not claiming to have cured myself of anxiety. I still get anxious. I still uh, I still have some struggles with that. And I still have some struggles with kind of relinquishing that perceived superpower. Um, but I am working on it. And I'm working on it with professional help somebody who has answers that i don't uh, i was pretty quickly able to see that that this person this um this counselor uh was going to be a, a good fit for me and so um being able to open up and and trust that outcome there's still work to do uh i think one thing that people will hear come up frequently is that this person um, is very much a work in progress. And uh, at no time am I, am I going to be comfortable saying like, okay, I've done it. I've succeeded at recovery or mental health, or "I, I think that this is more about the journey than the destination. And so by not putting a destination expectation in mind, I'm really kind of free to just improve kind of indefinitely. And sometimes that's going to be small improvements. Sometimes that might be setbacks. But there's always going to be this kind of pull towards improvement. And the, the milestones will kind of come as they come. There's really not much point worrying about it now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, is there anything in, in closing that you want to say to the audience? Uh, thank you. Um, it's been it's been an interesting few years of doing this podcast, meeting um, meeting people, uh, new people, familiarizing myself better with people that I may have already been acquainted with, and learning a little bit about. Their motivations for helping, their motivations for being a part of any particular program, um, it's it's been it's, it's been great, and this podcast, like we talked about in the last episode, is really meant to help people through that trans-theoretical model, the the data collecting and when i see that like we're getting listeners in the uk and and germany and the netherlands and australia canada uh, that was a weird flex but i'm gonna run with it here it's it's really inspiring to know that we live in an age now where even during pandemic shutdowns and with literally oceans between us we're we're still able to connect in some way and we're able to be heard and we're able to listen from oceans away and so if the whole point of this podcast is to try to give people some sense of resource some sense of interest then i i think that we are on the right track and and I mean, obviously, as I sit here recording an interview back and forth with myself, uh, there's room for improvement. Um, I thought that this could be a fun uh, reimagining of of the episode of of the season one finale. But realistically, um, the hope is that next season will be a little bit more concentrated, will be a little bit more focused and... um, anybody that's been on this podcast um, if you're listening to this episode I hope that you see the value in that I hope that you understand that what you are participating in is something that that either right now or someday uh, could be very valuable to somebody or to a large group of people. And your participation is really what is the essence of this podcast. And so I, I sincerely thank every guest that we've had. Uh, I sincerely thank every listener that we have. And that's, I think, what I can say about that. Thank you so much for your time. Well, again, we really appreciate your being here and, uh, hopefully we can have you on at some point again. Wouldn't that be fun? So I hope you had fun listening today. Um, it was interesting to record that and, uh, who knows, maybe we'll have him on again at some point. As always, Voices, the podcast is brought to you by Voices of Problem Gambling Recovery, Inc., a nonprofit whose mission it is to advocate, educate, and promote recovery. You can visit their website at vpgr.net, and we'll see you next season on Voices, the podcast.